Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello and welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival 2023. My name is Ailsa Piper and I'm a reader and a writer. And I'm delighted to welcome you to discuss Kate Legg's wonderful book of revelations, Infidelity and Other Affairs. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to acknowledge that we are gathered on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to elders past and present and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here with us today. Kate was born in Perth and you probably didn't know this, but her first paying job was washing the scalps of ladies at Renee's hairdressing salon. <laughs> um, perhaps it was there that she learned that everybody's got a story and that it was worth listening to them because she went on to become, as we know, an award-winning journalist and author who has been chronicling social and political affairs since the 1980s. Kate works across forms, long form, short form, fiction, non-fiction. To give you an example, her novel, The Unexpected Elements of Love, was long listed for the Miles Franklin Award, and her non-fiction book, Kindred, A Cradle Mountain Love Story, was a finalist in the Queensland Literary Awards. But Kate didn't begin with prizes and profiles of pollies. So can we go back to that 14-year-old? In the hair salon? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Did I she remember she... most about those with the scaly scalps <laughs> <laughs> of elderly ladies. <laughs> Did she know, though, that she wanted to be a writer? Always, always. Oh. Partly for, for escape, the purposes of escape, I think. And if you're a reader, a voracious reader as I was, and living in a, in a, in a house of horrors, which was, it sometimes seemed to be at home, reading was a, you know, a wonderful escape. And I always wrote, wrote poems, wrote you know, a little community newspaper on my father's old black Olivetti typewriter and oh. always. Mm. My father used to tell this story about me where we went to the circus at the age of three in Perth. And of course, in those days, circuses had everything that was, is no longer allowed. Lions, tigers, clowns, bearded ladies, trapeze artists. But I couldn't take my eyes off the man who was sitting next to us who had a wooden leg. That was, to me, I'm so much more interested in how characters are shaped by adversity, I suppose. Yeah, and yeah. just as I, I always remember the scalp, scaly sculpts in the hairdressing salon, I think that's the sort of thing I've always been intrigued by. Well, and it's in exploring. the It's the difference. It's, yeah. yeah, it's the detail, mm. isn't it? You can say an old lady, but an mm. old lady with a scaly mm. scalp is really something. Mm. Is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so then how did, you know loving writing and reading translate then into journalism? Did you study well, I just couldn't believe I could get paid for doing something that I <laughs> loved. And, you know, there's that great Aristotle phrase that if you can, if you can find something you do that you love you, uh, working um, and get paid for it, you've um, hit the jackpot. And um, that's what it was like for me. And so <laughs> I started at the... Um, used to write theatre reviews for the Melbourne Times and then um, I co-edited Farago, the student newspaper, which was, um, you know, a... a Ticket to paradise, really, yeah, because you could, you could write anything. We got into all sorts of scraps and trouble, but it was a marvellous experience, and that then led me to start at the age in um, Melbourne. As a cadet? As a cadet, yes. Yeah. And, uh, what was your first story I, as a cadet? I, it was the International Year of the Disabled, and they brought in a three-legged uh, Alsatian that <laughs> I had to write a story about. And, of course, women in those days, because the newsroom was really dominated by men, and so we were often given what they called the colour stories on the front page of the paper, or as Geoffrey Barker used to refer to the, to the women getting social affairs rounds in Canberra, 
the, the lump in the throat rounds. That's what we were given. <laughs> but it was for me, for writers, it was a magnificent place to be positioned in the paper because, you know, you got to, to really invent and create and use your imagination in writing stories. You didn't necessarily have to stick too heavily to the, too, too strictly to the facts. So the fiction writer was sort mm, of was just bought. standing yeah. there beside you at the time. Mm. Um, so you stayed at the age mostly. I stayed at the age, and then I went. To, I worked on. I was one of the first women to write um, about industrial affairs. Ah. Another a lot of affairs. I know. But, I, we'll talk about the word affair. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't in it? Trade ha- used, trades yeah. hall when Norman yeah. Gallagher ruled the uh, Builders Labor's Federation, and oh. Bob Hawke had just departed the Storm and Packers Union to start his race for the. Uh, for the lodge, um, but it was a, and then I uh, went to Sydney and lived, lived in Sydney for five years and then um, Canberra. Right. And in the book, you do tell us that the first time you spied your husband was actually... At the Boulevard at, Hotel, at yeah. a press conference for, um, for Bob Hawke. Yeah. So could you just give us a picture of the two of you at that time? You know, there was... Well, he had just come back from London yeah. and he, he, was, he had reported on, on, on the Thatcher government and uh, he had an economics degree and I remember turn, I was taken to the press conference by a colleague... Um, and, you know, he was this room full of scruffy journalists. All of the uh, broadcasters are carrying these massive tape recorders in those days. And uh, he stood out for his uh, eucalypt green suit, red vest, uh, shell uh, glasses, framed glasses, and his very peppery questions on budgetary policy. So he, he was the only journalist in the room who was giving Hawke a hard time, and that, that really interested me. Yeah, I bet. And, uh, and then we both went on the road and didn't meet again until we were working in Canberra covering the Hawke government. And our first were conversation... Were you in relationships then? Uh, I wasn't. I was. I was and he wasn't, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that was important to me to, to actually extract myself from that relationship before I started the next one with, uh, with my husband. Yeah. yeah um. Um, I, I just would like to go to that word affair because I do think it's interesting that we say we cover political and social affairs mm. and, you know, but it's interesting, isn't it, the words around infidelity... Mm. Have you kind of considered how that comes to be? I, I looked in the dictionary and I found that they, the, the nearest I could come to why we say affair is that the French have affair du coeur. Mm, mm. But what you're writing about in here is not necessarily only affair of the heart, it's sort of affair of the genitals as well, isn't it? <laughs> well, and affairs of all other kinds too, because that's the title, infidelity mm. and other affairs. Yeah. And the other affairs yeah. stretch right across yeah. both my family and, and the joys and wonders of life in general. Yeah. And I like the word affairs because it's broad, because it's so broad. It doesn't have, carry the freight and the cargo of judgment. It doesn't, um, you know, the purple stain of, uh, um, you know, criticism and um, condemnation. It's a very light and gentle term. Um, and philandering and cheating, those yes. words, I don't like, I didn't, when we ran an extract um, from the book on the on the cover of the Good Weekend, I didn't like the use of the term cheaters. I just feel that's so laden with 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 judgment. It's and interesting, affairs, though, isn't it? affairs it... can be grand, grand, and full yeah. of passion. And there are all sorts of affairs. And this is the thing that Esther Perel talks about. You know, if she's um, every time she Esther has a Perel, couple, just explain for those she, who don't she's know. She's the her. Um, a New York couples therapist who wrote a book, um, Rethinking Affairs. Uh, state of infidelity today. And she says that every time she, she, she um, meets couples in her room, she comes across a novel variation and idea for why they started the affair in the first place. I mean, there's all the obvious reasons, um, but, uh, that, you know, there's always a new one. She's not much for telling, is she, for disclosure? 
No, that's right, because she feels that can uh, destroy the chances of people reconciling and mm. coming back together. Interesting. But there, there are so many reasons, you know, there's the, the discontent, the loneliness, and she, and she really describes this search for the lost self, that people are often searching for who they once were. Mm. The idea of them as young and carefree with the whole world in front of them having not made the mistakes they have wandered into mm. in perhaps choosing the wrong partner. Mm. So there you are, the eucalypt green suit. What were you wearing? I cannot remember. Clothes <laughs> have never been my strong point. And oh, in I fact, well, today I've made a bit of an effort. <laughs> but actually, my husband, who loved clothes and loved shopping, he would always buy my clothes. Oh. Yeah, because he, he just loved shopping. And I don't. I, 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 it's just something I don't, uh, I don't do unless I absolutely have to do. Do you still get him to take you shopping? No, no, no I've managed to date. <laughs> Dress myself. So but take, it's just us, one of those take us through then. Um, you, you know, you have years of... Building 30 a life years, and family. Yeah, mm. 30 years together. And mm. we had a fascinating life together, mm. covering politics in Canberra, where, of course, there were lots of affairs happening behind, under every desk, behind every door, from the Prime Minister's suite right down to the press gallery. But nobody wrote about them. Everybody knew about them, but nobody wrote about them. And, of course, the most famous one of all was Blanche and Bob. Yeah. And, uh, but he even cheated on her during that time. But um, it was off limits, you know. It wasn't... And I'm fascinated by this question of when we did start writing about them, but it wasn't in Canberra. Uh, I think when we went to Washington... The uh, uh, um, Donna Rice and uh, Gary Hart, who was the oh, Democratic yeah. candidate, and the and boat, he, and the boat. The monkey boat? business, monkey, monkey business. business. But yeah, he, he, business. he dared the dared the reporters to sort of catch him out, and of course they did. And his candidacy went up in, a, in, in flames. And from that moment on, I think it really became a test of character. People, journalists saw it as a test of character. And then, of course, in the last two years, we've had so much in Canberra revealed about uh, consensual affairs as well as um, other what, inappropriate activity. What was your feeling about, you know, let's think Clinton and Lewinsky and Hillary, mm. like through that time when you were reporting on that, was your feeling generally that about affairs that they were a test of character. Did you have an opinion about it? No, I didn't really. And that's the interesting thing too about um, a Clinton and indeed JFK, you mm. know, the, and Cork. It, that, it, didn't, it didn't spoil the, our appetite, the electorate's appetite for these men because they were big, powerful men who were hard dogs to keep on the porch. And, um, <laughs> you know, voters like that, red meat, that, that fact that they're attractive, they're charismatic, you know, Clinton with his saxophone and easy with women, same with JFK, that didn't spoil our, uh, our uh, desire to have them in office. Um, and I didn't judge them, no. Uh, it's interesting because often the woman get. Uh, it always fascinates me because often the other woman gets, gets judged more mm, than the man does. Mm. And of course, in literature, and in um, you think of Anna Karenina and Madame Bovary. It's the women who die, the women who've sinned, who are who either take their own life or. Uh, and that seems to be a, be a moral judgment to me, that a warning, if you like, you know, don't dare go down that path. And of course, they can be dangerous, mm. terribly dangerous, and they can destroy lives. Um, of the participants and, and, and leave a lot of bloodshed and uh, misery in their wake. But they can also be grand, grand um, explorations of love and they can take you to places that you otherwise would never visit. As Annie Renaud says, who's written a beautiful book called Simple Passions from the point of view of the mistress. She talks about the affair having brought her closer to the world. And because the world is fascinating in, in its darkness and its light. 
Um, and, you know, we want the full range of the human experience. We're here for such a short time. Life is brutal and short. Mm -hmm. And so why not experience everything that you can in that time frame? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, you think about some of the other women and the way they've been portrayed and, you know, fatal attraction and things like that mm. come to mind. Mm. And they're the bunny sort of, boiler. They, yeah, they can mm. become these monsters, can't mm. they? Mm. Um, but coming back to your book, um, I'm just kind of interested in this idea of knowing and not knowing. You were someone who didn't have any idea, did you? No, this is, this is, this is uh, you know, I, I do feel slightly embarrassed about this, having sort of presented myself as a journalist who likes to get to the nub of things for 20 or 30 or 40 years and here. But this is one of the fascinating things to me about affairs um, in marriages where you have such close proximity with somebody. You know, you watch them go to the bathroom, you watch them clean their teeth, you're with them, you know, in the morning, you're with them at night, and yet they, there is this hidden life that you didn't know about. And, you know, nobody knows what goes on inside a marriage, it seems to me sometimes, not even the people in it. And, you know, how does that happen? And I think when you're, uh, as I was at the time, I had young children, I was so busy, I felt that I lived in the spin cycle of a washing machine, I was doing four things at the same time and all of them badly and not remembering any of them. And I couldn't understand how, how he had the wherewithal to, um, you know, to have that secret life. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me and I'm, I'm still fascinated by how people are able to do it and to be duplicitous and, and to lie about it. But, it, you know, it is what it is and you're never going to stop affairs. People are always going to have them. And yet people marvel that, you know, about criminals, about all sorts of things that, oh, you know, so-and-so was living with them and they didn't have a clue yeah, and yet yeah, there it is. Yeah. But and so perhaps you, you almost suggest in the book that there might have been a clue at your wedding with your father-in-law. That's right. So, and this is the story that I tell in the book because it's not just about the affair in my marriage. This is an intergenerational saga that crosses a hundred years of Australian life. And it, it starts with my husband's grandmother who had an affair with the lodger in their house in Broken Hill. Um, my husband's father broke this news to his, grand, to his father and the, his father booted him out of home at the age of 14 and he left and came to Melbourne. And then he married and he went on to have a significant affair. So significant, in fact, that they had a flat for 10 years, even though he would return home to the family home during the, uh, on, the, on the weekends. And then his son married me and had an affair. And then our son, who was perhaps also the most upset by the affair, went on to repeat the behaviour. And that is what fascinated me and that is what really in inspired me to write this story. I've always been fascinated by family sagas, you know, by what it is we learn at home. It seems to me that family is a ground zero, you know, it's like the blacksmith's forge, that's where in that white heat, you know, the molten metal shapes the characters before it is battered into shape. And I wondered and came across research which suggested that if you have been exposed to an affair in your family of origin, you are significantly more likely to go on and repeat the behaviour than if you haven't. And that doesn't necessarily mean that every child in every family who's witnessed it will go on to do it. Um, you know, obviously a lot depends on the character, you know, values and the hourglass we inhabit as to whether or not that happens. But the research in itself is quite fascinating. And it's not just that the research which suggested that it, it may be passed from one generation to the next. There has also been some fascinating neurological research 
um, into the um, vole, which is an anagram, the vole, which is, is it like a little cute little hamster which lives in, in America. It stretches from the Midwest right up into the, to the north of the country. And of course, vole is an anagram of love. <laughs> and uh, some zoologists were studying voles and they realised the voles were turning up in pairs and that this is very unusual amongst mammalian species. And they thought that they were socially monogamous, but then they th also thought that perhaps they were sexually monogamous. And further DNA fingerprinting revealed that there was some opportunistic infidelity amongst the prairie voles. <laughs> no one is perfect. Not even a vole. The but there's uh, the so the prairie vole is in the Midwest of America, and up north there's the montane or meadow vole. They look absolutely identical. They're 99% genetically alike, but there's 1% genetic difference. And the neuroscientists zeroed in on this, and they found that the prairie voles had um, uh, they had more receptors which picked up on the chemicals of. Uh, vasopressin and oxytocin, which are the, which are the um, neurochemical transmitters that uh, promote bonding and attachment. Whereas the montane and um, meadow voles had fewer of these receptors and they were further away from the reward circuitry in the brain. So we're never prisoners of our own biology, but this is just fascinating to me, this idea that perhaps um, some people may be predisposed to risky behaviour as a result of their the, you know, neurological wiring. But of course, the difference between the vole and us at least mm. you'd hope so, is that we have some logic to fall back on and we're supposedly creatures who can offset passion with a bit of logic. So, But isn't that the thing, though? Because when you're in the thrall of passion, I don't think there is logic. Maybe that's it, And this yeah. is that, well, there's that beautiful quote from Shakespeare about lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies, they apprehend more than cool reason will ever comprehend. And I don't think they do that because I think it, it, it's like they, they lose sight of the sort of rectitude of morality mm. in the moment, in the moment. But coming back to the other research, um, the research that's about, you know, um, shall we say, familial mm. learning, um, in that, what you suggest in the book is that uh, it's not so much that it's inherited as that it's observational. And what the child observes, I really find this fascinating, what the child observes is that the parent's life after the split has got better. Mm. So why wouldn't you? Like mm. the door opens. Mm. I'm really interested in when doors open mm. to aberrant behaviour. Mm. Um, and I think there's another way of looking at that, which is that if, you know, you see the chaos, mm. that maybe you'd go, I will make my marriage work. But mm. in fact, of course, if a parent's better off... That's right. And there's some happiness and a chance at a second relationship, then why would you fix the leaky roof? Yeah. You know, why not just go and buy a new house and find a place that, you know, might suit you better? Yeah. And indeed, in, in the affairs, of, in my husband's grandmother's affair, um, when, you know, this, her secret was blown and my husband's father was kicked out of home, the, the lodger who she was having the affair with went off to war and died. And um, many years later, when my husband's father was in the midst of his own affair, his mother died and she bequeathed him a box. And inside the box was a note to him. And it said, Colin, because that was his name, Colin, I always loved Roy, who was the lodger. And so here was this devastating news that he was delivered, which I think actually in probably precipitated his decision then to leave the family and follow his heart because he was, he'd been with this woman for, for himself for 10 years or so. He was madly in love with her and they did. They married ultimately and stayed together and had a, had a 
rather fraught because they were both tempestuous, but a happy mm. relationship long term. I'm really. I, I'm, when you I'm think like, of how much we learn from family, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, whether it's an ear so... for music or whether it's conflict resolution or you yeah. know, educational choices, vocational choices, so much is uh, is learned at home. I'm so interested in that moment of the box. I mean, just this is a writers festival. We mm. like stories, readers. Mm. Um, you you thought about making this a book of fiction. Mm. You couldn't possibly have dreamed up, I suspect, that no, box. No, that's right. Mm. You know, mm. I mean, that mm. moment of mm. opening a box mm. that's been handed down, mm. that was, was it punishment or was it forgiveness, do you think, to mm. say you were right? So the child who had called out the affair mm. goes mm. away, barely has any contact with his mm. family and then inherits a thing that says, mm. I loved the lodger all along. Mm. Do you think that was kindness or do you think that was... Well, it's interesting whether or not a lot of people said to me, how, how could she do that? How could a mother mm. do that to her son to have the last word? But also maybe she was giving him a little bit of wisdom maybe, yeah. um, about, you know, what she didn't do. Because as a, he was a 14-year-old and they are very unsure themselves about love and the complexities of marital relationships and the, and the fatigue of a long-term marriage. And he probably didn't under, had none of that understanding mm. at that point in his life. Mm. And... Uh, Oh, I don't know why she did it. I mean, I would love to have interviewed yeah. her. I would love to have met Jean. And that's, of course, in that story, in the Broken Hill story, because that's where they lived. You know, that most, there's most imaginative uh, invention in that because most of the people are dead. In fact, mm. they're all dead now from that period. I was only able to interview one other sibling who remembered that time. So let's just backtrack for a minute. You go to Broken Hill to get this story about your husband's family, but that's after the affair's been revealed, which is pretty amazing. You know, this couple who there's been an affair, everything's exploded, and off they go together mm. to find this research. So let's just backtrack because I would like for us to get a sense of what the children, what your family saw of you once the affair was revealed because we're sitting here now and we know that Kate's calm and, you know, that you, you and your husband have found a place of peace. Mm. But the explosion of the affair. Can you just give us a little bit about how you found out and then maybe read a short Yes, well, this, uh, you really need a whiteboard for this. <laughs> 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 there were so many affairs. No, there was really only one, <laughs> one substantial affair, but lots of others in the, in the, in the wings. But I found I had two, two, two major discoveries. One was in 2007 when we had re returned to Melbourne after living in Sydney and we'd become very good friends. We, we developed this group of friends from, through the parents of the, of the school our children were at. We were part of a sort of social group. It was one of the women's birthdays we, at a celebration. And I call the, the, um, the, the woman who had the affair, with, the most significant affair with my husband, the Countess because of course it's, it's influenced by Countess, Count, Count Vronsky in, in Anna Karenina Tolstoy's great adultery novel. So I call her the Countess. So the Countess and I had gone to buy a present and for the, for the woman who was having the birthday. And the Countess uh, and you were friends. We're very good really friends, close. very good friends. In fact, we'd been away with our children only a week before on our own. Um, husbands were at work in the city. And um, I liked her enormously, and I, and I still do now. I've forgiven everybody in this drama, so I, 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 I'm not carrying any great vengeance or uh, dagger here to, to stab her heart. But um, she, was a, she was a delightful company. She had a lovely laugh, which I almost started parroting myself, you know, when you're with friends and you sort of pick up their, their gestures and their habits and customs. And, and uh, so we were very close. And she, they arrived late to the party, smiling. I didn't have any sense that anything was about to unravel. You know, we went home. It was a Sunday night. Uh, getting the children, feeding them, getting homework supervised. And then my husband called me out to the garage. 
um, which, is, which is at the rear of our house, obviously. Uh, and uh, there amongst the sort of cans of hard rubbish and rusty bikes and, uh, you know, all of the detritus of life that ends up there before it goes out onto the nature strip, he dumped his own bit of hard rubbish and told me that he'd been having this affair because her husband had found out and if he didn't get in first, she, he was going to tell me. And, of course, it was important for him to, to massage the chronicle and minimise minimize and, um, and present it in the most palatable light that he could. But, of course, it's very hard news to take so suddenly without warning and without any sense of anything having happened. And I got into my car and drove around the neighbourhood sort of sobbing, wondering where I would land with my stinking trouble because everybody else was getting ready for the, for the next week themselves and I just didn't want to land on anybody's doorstep. So I decided in the end to come home and just keep it very tight because our, our eldest was going into year 12 and I didn't want to sabotage his prospects. It was such an important year for him. And um, so that, was, that, was, that helped me get through the next sort of couple of years. And then it was the next time, of course, that, that I discovered the, that the affair had resumed. That was probably the most difficult for me because I had tried to, to, to make a, I had tried to get things back together and to make things work. And um, so that was really the most devastating of all. And I di didn't see her anymore, but stupidly, because I do always overshare everything, I came home and told him that she had left her husband. <laughs> so, you know, obviously it was probably bound to happen again. Mm. And he'd gone out, uh, you know, to, 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 to uh, the gym and he'd forgotten to sign off his private email account, which, which is, of course, you know, uh, nowadays there are so many avenues for affairs. Um, Whereas I grew up in a house with one telephone in the, in the hallway, <laughs> very difficult to have private conversations on, and one letterbox. So I sat down at the computer and that was, that was um, devastating then to discover mm. that it had... You, um, you, say, you say that you were... What was the burlesque phrase? It's a wonderful phrase about... Um, oh, that's the, the, um, the sex and the golf. That, that's, well, that's... no, just that you, you went into this place of trying to make yourself over, didn't you? Kind yes. Of crazy. Yes, well, because I did take seriously yeah. his log of claims of having been a journalist and having had to walk in other people's shoes and always trying to understand a story from both sides. You know, there's his version, her version, and somewhere in between is the truth. I mean, that's been the nature of my work for 40 years. And so I didn't want to just blame him and take that idea of victim and perpetrator. I didn't want to just be the victim. I felt that we could both work at this together. And because he was my family, he was the father of my children and I loved him. And I'd lost my mother when I was 23. And I had been with him for longer than I had known my mother. And so he was my family. And that was really important to me to try and make it work. But yes, I say, you know, the only domestic violence that was committed in this story was committed against myself. I did two things. I had a Brazilian, for God's sake. <laughs> Never again, never again. <laughs> the pain and the agony of that was absolutely something to discover. So I did that, but I also, you know, beat myself when I discovered that second affair because I, I, I guess that stopped me from murdering him. Yeah. I took it out against myself yeah. mm. and I beat myself and I, I was still working with the Australian. I went into the bathroom after I had done that. I burgled his phone to discover the dimensions of his deceit after that uh, after that the second discovery. And I was so distraught because I could see it in a, a fluorescent colour. You know, he, the version he had given me, which was diminished and, um, and uh, short-circuited, uh, was here it was in all its vivid colour and glory. And I was much harder. I, he was much kinder to my imagination when I knew less about what had happened. Mm. And so I really, I could see too that it was a significant affair. And that was really, I think, the thing that stung me most of all. Mm. 
I do want to get to your family um, because the, for those of you who haven't read the book, the second half of the book, the first half is the affairs, you know, the sexual affairs. But um, one of the things that really fascinates me is I went to the Oxford Dictionary. You know, we, we take certain words for granted, a word like affair. But I looked up infidelity and I was just really interested because of the nature of it being a best friend, you know, a really close friend that mm. he had the affair with. Um, and the, the Oxford defines infidelity as disloyalty or unfaithfulness. And then it says, especially lack of sexual faithfulness to a partner. But actually, well, sexual faithfulness comes second. And I just sort of wondered also, you know, the fallout of losing a friend. And, and then to ask you, do you think infidelity is possible in friendships? And do you think infidelity is possible in a marriage without it being genitals Sexual. bumping? Because, I mean, you know, genitals are kind of the least interesting bit after 28 years, one would think, or, you know. So, yeah, what do you reckon? Well, there's no contract in a friendship, is there? You don't stand in front of an altar or you don't sign a document. And so Say, I don't think... Say, death us do pass. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's an infidelity necessarily mm. um, in a friendship. But if it's disloyalty... But if it's disloyalty and betrayal, mm. and those are the sort of purple yeah. words, the treachery and betrayal. And it was devastating for me because I had trusted her so completely and because I regarded her as such a close friend and because I I couldn't see myself doing that to anybody as we had done the week before I discovered about the affair standing in the kitchen talking and sharing intimate moments and um, and um, you know them hiding this from me com so completely um, but I did feel you know now in um, marriages we, we talk about all sorts of coercion and control don't we that go outside of um, infidelity sexual infidelity um, and can there be, I think it has to relate to the sex. I do think it has to relate to the sex probably because, you know, that is such a, so fundamental, you know, distrust, the trust factor in a relationship. Once that's broken and shattered, it's very hard to get that back again. Mm. And, you know, we tell all sorts of white lies to each other, but it's the lie about the sex, I think, that is the hardest, hardest initially to bear, even mm. though I do still believe that you can overcome that. Um, with I'm sort of fascinated because there's a therapist that you quote, I can't remember his name, Savage. Dan Savage, yeah. Who talks about being monogamish. Monogamish, gay, married and monogamish. Yeah, yeah. and I, like, mm. I sort of think that's mm. really interesting mm. because it does allow for the fact that there yeah. are intimacies yeah. that are much graver, I think, about mm. our deeper thoughts and souls mm. than actually, mm. you know. No, I really liked his attitude and he also, you know, he said we promise not to stray but sometimes we do and if we do it shouldn't necessarily be the end of everything and that you can salvage the best of the relationship, which we've done, which we've, you know, we're, we're very good friends now yeah. and uh, I, I don't think it necessarily needs to fall apart but what his point is is that it, there has to be honesty, there has to be honesty because... Um, as Helen Garner said in the note she left for her ex when she discovered that he'd been cheating, lying makes can make people go crazy. And it's the lying that is, the, is so damaging, far more damaging really than the idea of the sex. Um, you know, and yet Esther Perel says, don't tell. No, that don't tell before you when you're trying to get back together. After oh, okay. you've discovered the initial, see, before I let my husband back in to have a second go, I can't believe that I'm saying this, but I did. <laughs> Would I have gone and have a third and fourth go? I don't know. But I asked him for a list of, so I wouldn't have to discover any more dead bodies. And, he, and, and his list was encyclopedic. <laughs> so at least that stopped me having to go on searching and looking. Um, but that's why she discourages it, because it can, you know, trip up any attempt to, to, to um, find a resolution in the relationship. 
Look, we could talk about this kind of infidelity for a long time, but I do want to get to the second part of the book because I feel like it often gets overlooked when you yes, it does. Kind of, yes. You know, when you well, talk it's more about complicated because infidelity is such an easy thing to understand, and mental yeah. illness in families is 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 more difficult. And you know, as Tolstoy says, each family is unhappy in its own particular way, and and each particular form of madness is 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 uh, different. So, but, yes, but, but the family, but after, yeah. is, as so, I've said before. So you're asking a question, it seems to me, throughout the book, whether it's nature or nurture mm. or how much of each. Mm. And so the, the question of whether or not the behavioural stuff about affairs is one thing, but then you go to your own family and through the pandemic, Kate's back in the garage unpacking stuff, mm. Mm. and you begin to look at your own family mm. and you find this strain of mental mm. illness. Well, it's just it was more I went looking for my mother, who I lost when I was 23, yeah. and my brother had come to me... Um, uh, to tell me that he, he, an uncle of ours, had said that he'd, she'd seen, he'd seen our mother throw me against the wall when I was two years old. She was a very fraught and a very difficult um, personality. And even though we, we loved her very much, she was, it was traumatic at home for a lot of the time. She, my youngest brother is intellectually disabled and incredibly emotionally volatile. And she was living at a time when women weren't able to work outside the home. And, and so, and she was very well educated, as well educated as my father. And I think she felt absolutely fraught and frustrated. She was isolated. No one wants to be around a family where there's a difficult, really difficult child. There was little um, uh, psychological or um, support for him. And I think she was really sidelined. I think that probably really ramped up her um, volatility. And um, we would, you know, we, we, we would hear her and we would, we, she, her, she was like a person, we had our personal air raid siren warnings and we knew when things were about to go off the rails and we would careen into her abyss. And um, so that's who I went looking for. I wanted to find out more about my mother and my father because he was an academic and he was, a, he was a, an archivist and he kept this voluminous um, filing cabinet of p personal papers and letters and documents. And I went into the garage, which my brother dubbed the crack den, <laughs> because it was covered in um, graffiti tagging that my son had done and we used to go out there during family gatherings for illicit cigarettes. <laughs> so the crack den was where I spent the lockdown in Melbourne. Of course, we had the longest lockdown of any city in the world. And that's where I found myself on many cold mornings sitting in the garage going through these documents at the same time as I was also teasing out an idea for how I might write this story about infidelity, this four four-generation saga of infidelity. And it was while I was in the garage delving into my mother, looking for my mother, that I found out about my, much more about my uncle, who had been um, uh, a roadkill in the Petrov affair, which was Australia's great spy scandal, and he'd never recovered from it. And he also had this seam of depression and mental illness running through him. He was our favourite uncle. He was the most brilliant and beautiful uh, man um, but I, I also discovered a lot about him, as well as the paper trail relating to my brother, who my elder brother and I now take care of because both our parents have died. And so I became fascinated. As I said before, I think the family is ground zero in so many ways. And, it, it, you know, I was fascinated by how temperament and circumstance forge who we are. What is, it's the great mystery of, of becoming. Uh, how do the, th the, the, the threads of kinship plait? These were the sort of... Um, uh, this was the quest I was undertaking. And so what made you decide, because you do say that you were thinking about writing your story as mm. a novel, mm. was it finding your own family story that made you decide to go with non-fiction? Or what was the decision and how did you come yes, to it? Yes, it was part of that. I'd been reading David Sedaris's Calypso. I don't know whether you read him, but his searing honesty, you know, he, he, talk, he writes about his family 
um, and he, he says that my family are always telling me stories and they say, I'm not allowed to write about it, but they know they're not to take me at my word. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, this thing about families having a, uh, a Helen Garner, who I quote, because I've, I've written about her at various points. So I do know quite a lot about things that she's written, but she's often said that writers should have a sign on their gate saying, enter at own risk. <laughs> well, of course, the family can't get away. They're completely, you know, they're stuck, they're trapped. And um, it, it, I... It was while I was doing these two things simultaneously, I came across this, and I'm going to, going to recite the last verse of this poem. I'm trying to have a, have, do in my own small way what Four Weddings and a Funeral did for Auden's Funeral Blues. And I came across this poem that W.B. Yeats wrote late in his life called The Circus Animal's Desertion, where he's looking and wondering at what were the muses and where have they gone. And the last verse, he says, These masterful images, because complete, grew in pure mind. But out of what began? A mound of refuse or the sweepings of a street? Old kettles, old bottles and a broken can? Old iron, old bones, old rags? Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. And so the foul rag and bone shop of the heart became a metaphor for me to sit and wonder about all of the influences on my own development as well as what happened in my husband's family and how that shaped mm -hmm. the marriages and relationships. Mm. There's a cost though, isn't there? I mean, or there's a potential cost in telling such a story as memoir because the mm. people are still around. Yes, but it's so, I find the personal voice and because I've written long form mm. non-fiction and because I spent 40 years asking people to share their most intimate secrets, I felt that it was you know, incumbent on me to unburden my spirit and my mm. soul as well. And I, found, I find often personal memoirs the most profoundly moving when people do stop curating themselves mm. and are honest about the uh, trials that they've endured. So for example, Romulus, um, um, Romulus My Father, written by Raymond Gator, or Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal. Um, by Jeanette Winterson, or Truth and Beauty by Anne Patchett, this, you know, about her, her friendship and relationship with the poet Lucy Greeley. Yeah. These are, you know, profound moments of um, investigation and, and inquiry, and you learn from them. And, and I wanted people to have conversations about them. And because in, um, infidelity in particular has always been dealt with, mostly in the literary realm, and as I said before, you think of Anna Karenina, Madame Bovary, Kate Chopin's *The Awakening*. There are so many fictional um, books that have, have, have dealt in, delved into this area. There we are. Um, going back to the, the oh. rag and bone shop. Yeah. You know, you're there in the garage with all the sort of stuff from your own family, mm. and I can't help thinking about that wooden box. I know I'm obsessed with the wooden box. No, but it's it is the thing such to, a devastating moment. But it's the thing too of there's stuff passed down through the line genetics and behaviourally, but there's also stuff that is objects. And I'm just curious now, you know, the whole thing of finding out about affairs through, you know, and affairs mm. of state, affairs of anything mm. through letters and mm. objects, mm. compared to the digital world now. Um, as a writer, what do you feel, I mean, really as a writer, what do you feel about how that's going to play out in the future? You know, do you think we're going to have the riches that we have by seeing someone's handwriting, the stuff that they've crossed out, for instance, you know, in letters, we can't see that now. I mean, what do you no, feel I about don't. that I think, rag and bone shop? No, well, because it's so valuable, yeah. you know, because I found letters, love letters, to, you know, from my grandmother to, to, her, to the man she married, these beautiful handwritten accounts 
of life at the time. You know, as I said, I found some of the things that moved me most were sort of the things that were written on scraps of paper. For example, the list of people that would be called upon to look after my mother when she was in palliative care, who were never called upon because she died too soon. Those sorts of things. Again, my father, I have to have to pay um, tribute to him because he kept absolutely everything, including the utility bills from 1942 and, you know, the philosophy exam he sat in 1940. But, you know, all of it was rich mm. and, and, and to be drawn upon and it, um, you know, fosters the imagination and leads you on paths of inquiry. And if, there, if it's not there, you, you know, how, and, or if it's so voluminous, you know, kept in these great data storage places out, you know, wherever mm. they are, um, you know, how are you going to get access to them? And they are for the next generation. And you don't become interested in these things, I don't think, really, until later in life, because you're so busy trying to forge a path for yourself when you're young. You don't really, you're not interested, you don't consider mm. these things, you wouldn't go out searching for them. And it was really, yeah. uh, I was so lucky and so blessed. And it brought me so much peace in so many ways. Um, as I reflected on the mystery of becoming who we are, to learn so much about my family um, and, you know, the characters and, you know, the, 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 uh, the tragedies and the sadnesses, as well as the joys um, and the wonder. Um, in terms of your future, you're a grandmother now, are you keeping stuff for your grandchildren or are you... Yes, no, I'm, I'm, sadly, I've inherited my father's capacity to keep <laughs> everything. And I've made great boxes for them um, yeah. because I've just cleaned out, we just cleaned out the family home. And I, I'm, you know, they're not interested now, but one day they will be. Yeah, and I kept yeah. everything that they wrote because it gives you such insight. And into what do you moments. feel, what, oh, sorry, um, what do you feel your kids have observed of you? Because it seems to me that where you've got to is a place of forgiveness and acceptance. Mm. So in terms of those next generations, do you mm. feel like the, the chain, the, I know I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word curse, do you feel it's broken or do you feel? Well, of course, one of the prompts for this book was when our son did have an affair mm. that broke up his engagement. So, um, one, he, you know, he in fact did go on to repeat the behaviour. I don't, I think, I think, you know, I, I can't speak for him really as to what he'll do in the future. But I think that my daughter-in-law said to me that when she was going through all this, she felt like she was standing on the shoulder of the road and being sprayed by gravel. And that um, reading this, you know, gave her insights. It gave, and she understood there was a measure of psychological objectivity that was brought to the story um, that brought her comfort. And um, I've always overshared, as I think I said before. <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, there's secrecy and shame are the worst things. If you don't talk about things they're hidden and um, you know they can sort of rot and uh, wither and fester and I, I think that you, you know you need to get them out there you need to talk about them secrets need to be aired uh, you know so that people can learn from you know mistakes and uh, relationships are so vexed and we get so little advice as to how to you know find um, our way in that murky world and I certainly didn't have any advice when uh, my mother had died I didn't have so many conversations that I didn't have with her. I would have been glad perhaps for something, you know, like this, which um, uh, tread through um, the difficulties mm. when relationships go wrong mm. and people are betrayed. Do you think we listen, though? I mean, you said earlier that passion destroys reason, reason and advice yeah. relies on reason. Do you, think we, do you think we can listen? I mean, Well, perhaps it's also about learning how to recover, learning yeah. how to recover yeah. from those sorts of things. So what did you do to recover? 
Well, it's time, 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 time. And also the writing of the book. My husband said that he watched me heal through writing the book, putting one word in front of another, which is how writers always make sense of the world. And I think why readers read in order to make sense of the world and to, you know, to, to, uh, to think your way through it and to weight up the words you use to describe what has happened um, and to bring some distance to the experience and not writing it immediately. Because of course, a writer's therapeutic reflex instantly is to start writing when something's happened to them. And I did this. I started writing initially, but my literary agent at the time, who is a great friend, said, don't, 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 don't go there. And so I didn't. I put it to one side. And I think that that is the thing that um, distance and healing, it gives you a, such a different perspective and you are able to come to it in the, in, the, uh, in the hope of illumination, you know, rather than sort of more emotional um, you know, destruction. Mm. And it's the yeah. other advice you got that I thought was... And falling in love again, of course, is always, well, yeah. you know, the great... Uh, yeah. uh, and it Do you might, trust? It well? might not last. It doesn't last either, as I've discovered. <laughs> <laughs> born to be unlucky in love. <laughs> but did but, you find that you could trust again with the same confidence? Yes, and I think that's one of the great liberating things of this, of having written this book is, that, uh, you know, there's, there's an acrimony and bitterness and blame is just such an unhealthy place to be. And you've got to let go. I mean, people, if they love you, they'll stay with you. Mm. You know, you can't go hunting them, stalking them, you're, you know, neurotically stalking them to see if they're doing everything that they said they should or would or whether they're keeping their promises. You, you know, you really, if you love someone and they love you, you have to let go. You have to let go and just love and, uh, you know, hope for the best. I think that's amazing because I, I do think trust is... Well, some people have been hard, very disappointed by the lack of revenge. <laughs> They, they really are. Didn't they seriously. You get a doll at least they, and they, they, they wanted some blood and gore, definitely. <laughs> People do. They want to know that you've stood up for yourself sometimes. And, yeah. and, and, and some, one of the women who interviewed me who told me that about her husband's affair, she said, I smashed his Wedgwood cornucopia, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then a, another friend told me the story of the, of the woman who uh, used her husband's toothbrush to clean the toilet <laughs> and then sat there while he came in and watched him clean oh his teeth. Oh, my God. <laughs> not for me, not for me. The only, and he, the only, only little bit of revenge that I executed was at the touch of a key. And I did, it wasn't even my idea when I was sort of hyperventilating over reading these uh, emails, these hot, passionate, purple emails. I realised that he was also sending emails to another woman who he just met at a, at a, at a, at a conference. And uh, a Spanish, she was a Spanish mayor. And they were sent, the emails sent to the countess were, were sent an hour, with an hour between sending them to the Spanish mayor. And I was, I was sort of hyperventilating and telling my friend that she said, send them to her, send them to each of them, which I did. Oh. And apparently... <laughs> You know, because a woman, I mean, of course, a man who's deceived his wife is going to be capable of deceiving his mistress, of course. But of course, nobody thinks it's going to come and visit them until it does. Mm. Mm. I'm so, I mean, I was very relieved when I read that little thing in the book because I thought... Yeah, there you go. See, people well, like to know that you've had a partly, punch back. It's partly too that you don't want someone to be perfect. I don't, it's like... I don't know. I'm not perfect. No, no. I'm far from it. But I'm, uh, I'm not a sort of an angry, no. vengeful character. Oh, mm. there is a question here. I mustn't cut it off. Yeah. Sorry. Hello. I was really interested that your husband was supportive mm. of you mm. writing it. And I, I think that obviously says a lot about the respect between you. Mm. Um, do you think you sort of helped him to understand 
himself? Like what is, I'm interested in, yes, in how that's... that's a really, really good question. And I think so. I, I think so. I think he, um, you know, as I, I said that when I told him, because initially I was going to write fiction and then when I told him that I was going to write the non-fiction, there was a very, very long, awkward pause on the front steps. And, but I said I would not publish it unless, you know, he was happy with it because I didn't want to cause damage but gets damage. I've seen it so often in journalism. I didn't want to um, go down that trail. Um, I, I, know I really hope he's learned something. I know he's, um, he lies in bed at night in the fetal crouch and really has filled with self-loathing and hatred at times for himself and for, and for his behaviours. For everyone that's been grazed by his deceit, not just me, because, of course, everyone in this has their own particular story to tell. Um, but I, uh, yes, yeah, so, th so I think he has learnt about that, and also it's given him some understanding of his own family, because these are things that he had, he, he he was aware of, you know, in in the background and the white noise of growing up. But I don't think he'd ever sort of focused on them and concentrated. And we had these long conversations in the car driving back from Broken Hill about um, the why and the wherefore. And he's often said that it's the insecurity. He had terrible insecurity, and that that's often another reason for why sometimes people search for that sort of sexual quick fix to give them to build up their confidence and, um, and self-esteem, I suppose. But I'm going to ask him that question later on today and see what he's got a better answer than the one I've just given. As you know, mental health and alcoholism is uh, strongly genetically disposed. Mm. So do you think that um, exposure to infidelity or parental infidelity um, primes one for um, such venture in their light, later lives. Mm. So if that's the case, then perhaps we should be preventing our children from being exposed to such exposure. Well, that would be a wonderful world, but I don't think that's possible because, you know, you can't hide things from uh, children in families. And it seems to me, too, we're so much more likely our memory snags on the sort of distressing and disturbing things. So you're much more likely to remember the drunken tirade or the shattered bars or the, the slap or the lipstick-smeared face than you are to remember the benign lulls in between. Um, and I don't think you can protect or shelter children from that. And, um, and the only, yesterday I was standing at the station um, when you catch the train in from the airport and I saw, uh, you know, a couple speak to each other with their children there in quite sort of aggressive, violent way. And, you know, they see what they see and, um, you know, they, they work out and um, distill it and synthesise it as they go through their lives. And that's part of, again, you know, being closer to the world and realising that um, there's lots of darkness in love as well as compassion and, um, you know, great joy. There's a whole lot more in this book to unpack, particularly in the second half. The chapters in the back of the book are really very rich about grandmothering and about the lack of truth in the world at the moment, that it's, yeah. the truth is the scarcity. The scarcity. So it's a very generous book, this one. Kate's story is very generously told. Can I ask you to join with me in thanking Thank you. Her? Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming too. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.